Hello and welcome back to the podcast. Uh, my guest this week is uh, an exciting one, Chad Loader, founder and CEO of Habituate. Uh, Chad is a veteran in the security industry, as a co-founder and VP of engineering at Rapid7 before he moving on to be CISO at uh, multiple places. Uh, Chad, welcome to the podcast. Talk a little bit about uh, what you're doing today, what is Habituate, uh, what problems are you guys solving? Sure. Thanks, Ryan. Um, it's great to be on. It's nice talking to you guys. It's nice to hear your voice. Um, so these days, I'm focused on my new startup, which is Habituate, and we are sort of a very different take on the security awareness um, problem. And so we Habituate produces really unique content, um, mostly video-based content for security awareness. And we have, a, I think, you know, a very unique and fresh approach that's informed not only by my experience as a CISO and what I wished to be able to roll out to my users, but also my co-founder, Jason, um, his experiences doing the worldwide security awareness programs for um, Walt Disney Company and later, you know, post-breach for Sony Pictures and so on. And uh, it's a great combination. It's a lot of fun. It's interesting being back in um, that scrappy startup mode where you're sort of rubbing two sticks together to make fire in the wilderness. I like it. It's hard. Um, definitely different this time around. Was and, it? Uh, so what are you doing? Do you remember uh, the early days at Rapid Seven? The days in 2000. I think it might have been in 2000 when Rapid Seven was founded. Uh, you were a co-founder. Were there major differences between, uh, you know, uh, startup fires uh, back then than huh. it is now? Is I it think easier? it's... Is it easier to launch a startup to now than it was in, say, 2018 years ago? I can't speak for anyone else's experience. I think that in security, it's definitely probably easier to get funded. I think that the security market really didn't broadly exist. Um as a mature market when we entered it. I mean, people were like, vulnerability management, what, what's that? Why would I put a hacker tool in my own network? So these days, I think there's there's so much uh, interest in the security market. VCs are desperate for places to put their money. They'll fund just about anything that moves. Anyone who's got a story or an idea, I think, can get funding. That part's easier. I don't know if having a startup's easier because it's it's a much noisier space now. And so it's great that there's all this activity and it's pretty, I think, straightforward to get funded, but it's really hard to differentiate as anyone who's been to RSA and gotten pitched on all the startups and seen the floor can attest to. So, and then in my own personal life, I think it's interesting in that um, I'm pretty open about the fact that I don't, I don't want to approach this, you know, at age 40, I don't want to approach a startup the same way I did when I was in my early twenties. You can't. Um, and hopefully you've learned something, you know, a couple decades in the industry where you don't want to have that same approach. Um, I know mind, a lot of, yeah. Can we, can we go back to the early days of Rapid7 and walk sure. through what the penetration testing vulnerability assessment market looked like at the time? Because uh, I remember you guys were uh, kind of one of the main guys in a space that also had core security immunity. And uh, Rapid7 then did a Metasploit acquisition. Yeah. Were you part of that acquisition? Were you involved in the negotiations? Yeah, I um, I I'm the primary person on the Rapid Seven side who really drove that. So HD Moore and I were were good friends. I think you um, walk me through the thinking because I remember the sure. time I was writing about Rapid Seven acquisition of Metasploit. Mm -hmm. Metasploit yeah. was filled with controversy at the time. It was it, we were pretty immature around uh, penetration testing and the use of these. Uh, point-and-click exploit tools that they used to be described as. Mm -hmm. uh, were, were there any nervousness about going down this route, or was it a natural thing? Talk to me about what was the, what was the thinking at the time um, around the yeah, Metasploit sure. acquisition. Well, I think, um, so I'll rewind. Sort of in the early days of Rapid7 in, in sort of 99, 2000, 2001, there was a lot of fear and hesitation in the enterprise around the idea of even a Vuln scanner being something that you know, is incorporated right? into practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a hacking tool and I have to get all kinds of approvals and we have to sort of, so we were used to that fear and, you know, we founded the company on the premise that you should hack yourself before someone else does so that you know what's up. And so we see all the, we saw all the nervousness around Metasploit as more or less the same phenomenon, something that we're familiar with and something that um, we felt that we could educate the market on and 
it was something that we felt was going to become common practice, which is not just getting penetration tests from some consultant, you know, once a year when you're required to, but to incorporate penetration testing into the core um, security operations, red teaming for the company, and to the extent possible, automate it. But it's interesting because, you know, I've always been involved in open source from the very early days. I was an open BSD contributor. You know, I'm sure you can find my code living in Nmap and a few other places. Um, I worked a lot on IPsec, which I'm a little bit ashamed to admit because it's such a disaster. But uh, I met HD Moore through that same community where I met, you know, Doug Song and, and some of these other folks. And he and I always got along. I liked the way his mind worked. I, I liked um, his integrity. And, you know, I think he's just a brilliant guy to work with. He built great a great guy. Great guy. He's awesome, Except right? that you could never, I could never understand him. He always spoke very, Talks very so fast. fast. <laughs> I know. It's, his mind works 10 times faster than his mouth. And his mouth is 10 times faster than everybody else's. So Yeah, but, but um, so brilliant and so uh, yeah. plugged into this space even at a time. Because Rapid7 dates back to the late 1990s. Yep. Yeah, and, what, were, what were those discussions like? Was he ready for, to sell um, or did he approach well, you? Did you guys approach him? I sort of approached him. Um, he and I had some cool ideas of just some some integrations that we wanted to build. So, so I'll start by saying um, vulnerability scanning is, is an exercise in managing a million special cases and, and building software architecture that can handle that. Um, and there is a there's sort of labor intensive and uh, check and signature intensive um, uh, dynamic, I guess you'll say, in building such a product, which is interesting because, by the way, it makes the barriers for entry for new people coming into the market now very, very high. No one's going to go back and do 15 years of signatures. It's a huge amount of work and it never stops. So the data that gets produced by the vulnerability scanning tools is you know, um, sort of started off being this 500-page report of a bunch of sort of theoretical vulnerabilities that might apply to your system, and here's how to patch them. Um, but there was always a gap between, okay, here, here's a missing patch, or here's a vulnerability that we can only check for with a certain level of confidence without tipping the box over. So there's always this gap between, this could be severe if it really exists, but does it exist? First of all, is the check accurate enough? And in the context of all the compensating controls that are on the system that are in the network, whether that's firewalls, whether that's anti-malware, um, so on, is that vulnerability something I, it, that can actually be exploited and something that I really need to worry about? We tried to do, and I think we did a good job with with the Nexpose, you know, Rapid7's Nexpose scan engine in that it's built on an expert system. So the idea is, hey, I can take a few you know, CVSS level four vulnerabilities and have the expert system dynamically figure out how to chain them together in a goal-oriented way, like a hacker would. And so you see, you know, Nexpo's early on showing signs of emergent intelligence in a way where customers would say, we ran your tool and we ran all the other tools and you're giving me local results off the box and I'm not sure how you got those. It seems impossible. And then we'd figure out, oh, we jumped in from this database server over here and then we moved upstream and we leveraged a, you know, local privilege escalation volume. But we would have to go figure out what Nexpos did, you know? And so, but that still wasn't enough. And it was always this balance between safety and how much, you know, how much validation can we do of the data? Because when you're talking data in large volumes, 100,000 nodes being scanned once a day, let's say, or a million, um, any little inconsistencies in the data really adds up. And so the thinking was, hey, we want to get to a point where the vulnerability scanning data is really, really high confidence. And then after that, as long as that takes, we want to build automation and orchestration on top of that. But to automate and orchestrate based off of low quality data is you just, you're just magnifying problems and annoying people. And so we were getting pushed to do stuff like, you know, full closed loop patching and ticketing integration. And I think every other vendor had that and we just resisted doing it and got beat up for it. But our thinking was the data is not there yet. Um, so we're not going to build automation on top of it until we feel like we have good quality data. Metasploit was a big part of that. So the initial thinking was, hey, um, we can take the Rapid7 scan results, feed them into Metasploit, and um, have Metasploit you know, match up the CVE IDs and, with its exploits and, and go automatically validate each vuln um, that it has an exploit for. 
and then return a list of here's the things that were successfully exploited and here's the proof. So the idea was a sort of split workflow, you know, so that um, the bone scanning team could come to the right folks with real data and say, these are the real bones. They're absolutely exploitable. I don't want to hear that you have some compensating control in place. Here's a screenshot of your box. Um, and that, you know, that idea kind of worked well and it sort of was a little bit of an awkward UX and, you know, there was no Metasploit Pro like UI at the time. It was mostly a command line tool. And, but we had some great customer feedback on it. HD and I realized we really liked working together. And so I said, hey, you know, would you be interested in exploring integration um, between the two companies in a more serious way? This feature is great, but we could do more together and we could take that project somewhere. You know that I have the background in open source. I'm not looking to um, mess up your community or try to monetize it in a cheap way. We want to really keep the investment in the community strong. What, what would it take? And so we, you know, all got together and Corey, Thomas, and Toss, and HD, and Mike Tukin and I, you know, all chatted about where the market could go and what we saw the market opportunity as, and realized it doesn't make sense to build Metasploit in as a feature of Nexpos, but to really keep them as two separate products, build a professional, like, grade penetration testing tool, but also have that tight integration so that we have the data quality coming out that nobody else can touch. Not only that, but um, not just the automated exploitation side of things, but the all of the reconnaissance and discovery that was already built into Metasploit makes a great basis to feed into Nexpos to say, hey, you know, we did domain enumeration, we did, you know, public reconnaissance from all these different systems, and we have a good idea of your company's surface area and footprint. Now we can feed that into Nexpos to scan it. So there's lots of lots of great integrations. It worked really well. And I think we were very careful and deliberate about how we did the community. Um, and we also wanted, frankly, I mean, I don't think anyone would mind me saying this, we wanted an answer to you know, Tenable's Nessus community that created a, a great base for sales for them based off of people using Nessus in college, you know, doing side projects and then coming out into the workforce and saying, well, this is the tool I'm familiar with. We wanted to have something similar. And uh, I think we did. And then, and um, uh, sort of changed the market a bit. And, and by the way, Rapid7 finally did actually, that once the data quality got to that point, Years later, after I left, Rapid7 bought Command, which is, you know, orchestration automation platform. And so that vision, you actually see that strategy unfolding over a 10-year period, which is pretty interesting. Yeah. And now they're the, the standard in the industry. And then you left Rapid7, yep. and, and this is the part that gets really interesting. You spend the next four years working as CISO and virtual CISOs at two different places, TrueCar and Quicksilver Technologies. Why yep. the shift from being in trenches, starting a company, building out, adding Metasploit? Why the shift to go to the defender side and take on a CISO role? Yeah, well, frankly, I was fully vested um, and the company was on that you know IPO trajectory and mm -hmm. um, just felt like I'm more of a startup guy and a seven 800 person company, not necessarily a place where um, I have as much fun. And frankly, I don't feel like I'm as effective in those kinds of environments. Um, and so it was just time for me to go. And I wanted to do something new. And I had all these ideas from the technical side of technical problems I wanted to solve and things that I wanted to do. And, and when you have a, an IPO story and a successful company that you've grown, the VCs come talk to you and say, Hey, we heard you're leaving. What, what's your next thing? Keep us in mind. We want, you know, we can connect you with co-founders. What, what ideas do you have? And it felt to me like I had all these cool ideas, but they were all based from my vantage point as a, as a, you know, security vendor. And I've been increasingly feeling a disconnect, no matter how well you do product management, no matter how many customers you talk to, um, I would be I would be developing a theory about customer needs, but I wouldn't feel the pain that they feel. And um, I always felt like the best way to start a company isn't some cool idea that you have. It's something that annoys you to your core. It's something that really bothers you, that you hate, that you think the market doesn't get right, and that you feel. And you can start a company based off of that, which is frankly how we started Rapid7 coming out of the enterprise space. And I needed an opportunity to do that. And I wanted to also, I had a sense that, we have a very specific vendor specific perspective and it's not that it's wrong, but it's that it's limited to our framework for how we think about security and what the important things are. And we certainly preach a lot like all the other vendors do. 
And um, I wanted to go do it, go go sit in that CISO role and build a security program in a, in a, in a company. And so I did that. And, and it was also a sense of, well, I'm not really sure what I want to do. Nothing's, like I said, nothing's really grabbing me. I have cool ideas that I'm sure I could pull off. Um, but nothing, nothing's really speaking to me. So let me just, you know, do some security work and, and bide my time and, and wait for, wait for an idea to come. Right. And as a CISO, uh, when you get to that side of the fence, now you're dealing with vendors and a, a lot of your work is evaluating tools, evaluating solutions, trying to figure out what fits into uh, this organization I'm building, what, mm -hmm. what fits into the threat model that I have, what am I trying to protect and so on. Which brings me to this epic rant that you did on Twitter <laughs> uh, yeah. over the last week. Two epic rants, but the first one um, is the one that really stuck with me because it's it's fits into a lot of themes that come up on this podcast is uh, a lot of vendors are in the space of how do I connect with a CISO? How do I uh, build a relationship with a CISO that I can somehow get my product into his stable? Yep. And your argument is, you know, even if you believe in your heart, like when, when, when you guys were at Rapid7 and you believed in your heart that a vuln vul, vul scanner should be part of every defender's arsenal, your argument was... That's not necessarily true. When you sit on that side of the fence as a CISO, that might be the last thing that I absolutely need. Um, what, absolutely. What, was, what was that experience like uh, as a CISO, having to have <laughs> these conversations with vendors like, guys, back off. Um, you know, yeah. this, this world is completely different. Yeah, I think it's first that, um, I, you know, I'm lucky in that I've had a lot of management experience at scale uh, within Rapid7 and in other places. And so, you know, I've managed teams up to 200 people, global teams. I've had to manage teams of companies, you know, where we did an acquisition. And so I've come into existing teams. And um, one of the things you learn is don't make any hasty decisions in your first six months on the job, certainly not your first three months. You want to have 90 days to figure out your team, figure out the mission and how the org works and what the real priorities are and what the real strategy is and where the sticking points are um, and come up with your own strategy. Give yourself time to, you know, if you're coming into a, you know, an engineering software engineering leadership role, ship a few releases, see how it goes. Um, resist the urge to just start showing your value right away and fixing things. It doesn't mean that you don't fix stuff as you go, but it's really easy to come in as a CISO and look at all this low hanging fruit and go be the hero and get yourself fixing, you know, 50 really super obvious things. And it feels like you're making traction, especially if you're a technologist, you come from a technology background, you're going to be comfortable making those technical changes. And in fact, you're going to be tempted to get bogged down in, oh, well, we should fix the password in this box. And, um, oh, this is obvious. Oh, this is a no brainer. We have to fix this before you know it. Now you don't have any time to think and assess and work with the leadership team, come up with the strategy, figure out what are the major projects that are in flight that you can attach your security initiatives to where you might do things out of order. You probably will do things out of order if you're smart. And when I say out of order, I mean with respect to NIST or any kind of model for how you build a base in security and, and you know build your teams and build your capabilities, build your technology stack. Um, there is no one way to do it because a lot of what you're trying to do is harness the existing energy of the organization where it's pointed and say, okay, I'm going to work with that rather than swim against the current. I'm going to say, Hey, here's an executive over here who's really serious about big data and about, you know, the questions he's hearing about privacy from customers and partners. And um, that's not something I would normally bite off in the first six months, but I've got one of the key executives of the company who's on fire about this. And so I might, I might say, I'm going to do that first because I have a champion and the timing is right. And I might put some other stuff on hold that from a purely risk-based perspective, um, you should theoretically work on first. Right. But it's, it's sort of, it's the art of compromise and it's being smart about, I have to let a lot of really obvious security debt just wash over the decks and not worry about it. And you have to ignore a lot of stuff and say, yep, I know it's an issue. I'm strategically ignoring it. And that's, and so based on, that's based on these first 90 days you did doing your reconnaissance, making sure you set your priorities and you figure out exactly, you know, what is the path for this yeah. specific uh, company at this time. Right. What am I working with? What was the, if, if there was a CISO before me, what was she like? And um, how do people think about security as a result of their interactions with the, the previous regime? Mm -hmm. Or is it the first time that they've had security? And what are their fears? What are their stresses? And... 
how does a company think about it if they think about it at all? Right. And where are the bases of power? And um, what am I working with from a raw materials perspective? Like what's in place now from a technology stack perspective, from a tech debt perspective? What kind of security team do I have? Um, are the people right. in the right role? So we have like, yeah. Am I going to be up against uh, a bunch of other vendors and this skill shortage trying to find the right people? So there's a million different things. One of the things you said in this uh, Twitter rant, and I encourage everyone to check out twitter.com slash chadloader um, and go read some of the things uh, you've been posting about recently. You said, nothing will humble you faster than seeing your 20 years of security experience run into the cold, hard wall of reality. That's kind mm-hmm. of stark. Um, yeah, you, you want to give me some examples of you know this this humbling feeling where you came from a, uh, from the vendor side, you're you know Mr. Hotshot, mm-hmm. and then you run into this cold hard wall of reality. What is this? Yeah, I think um, so many things. I mean, I think in the first CISO gig that I had, it was um, realizing that um, the previous occupant of my position. Um, by the end of his tenure, there was just a lot of frustration on on both sides. You know, his side in terms of maybe him feeling like he didn't have the support to get things done. I mean, he did a great job, and I'm not saying that their security was in rough shape. It was just, I think it was time for that person to go. But in the process, just everyone was rubbed a little bit raw by the interactions. I'm sure you know how those go, where it's, we need to take this seriously. We need to do it. You guys aren't doing enough. I need support for this. And the organization saying, you know, well, what about this? What about that? And so I realized there's a lot of um, political work that I had to do to sort of redefine the mission of security and to uh, establish trust. And um, you know, it's also in a growing company. So there's, there's sort of all the organizational dynamics there that would make it difficult maybe to say, hey, technically and, and from a purely risk-based perspective, what we should be doing is rolling this out first. But this thing over here, let's say, um, is, is hugely user visible. And it would be adding friction to users at a time when, when they already feel like security gets in their way and that things are difficult to use. So you do things out of order and you even do things like, hey, oh gosh, I really don't have visibility into the assets that I'd like. I don't have visibility into the projects that I like. I don't have visibility into um, what's happening on the network. But you have to also say, what would I do with that visibility? If you don't have the operational muscle, if you don't have the operational capability to look at logs, then you say, okay, how much do I want to invest in log management and incident detection versus saying we need to build a security ops function and get that staffed and before I start generating lots of data that I can't use. And and I looked at volume scanning the same way. And these aren't universal truths in every environment. It's just this particular environment, given the team and the sort of priorities and what was happening. Um, in order for me to be effective, I had to, um, like I said, do things quote unquote out of order. And so I just telling my former colleagues, I don't need a volume scanner right now. I wouldn't, I, I, w- I know it's going to be a shit show if I scan stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but what am I going to do with that data? I can't start patching stuff. And that's not a mindset you can have unless you're sitting in that chair, right? Uh, unless you get into that CISO chair and really understand the intricacies of the organization, there's no there's no chart or there's no, here's how it's done. It's so unique from organization to organization. Dealing yeah. with the politics that you just mentioned, just trying to get the CISO buy-in, trying to get the board buy-in, all of that takes up so much of your time in addition to having to defend the organization. And it's, there's a lot of security true. practitioners today, you know, dreaming of being a CISO one day or looking to get up into that C-level suite, C-suite. They get the sense that, you know what, this is a checkbox thing I can tick off and do and get myself involved in the process, not fully understanding the implications of all this politics and all this having to do things out of order and setting priorities that are different. Uh, and you go from organization to organization, you hear the same stories, but in, in different ways because they're all so unique. It's, it's absolutely true. And I think that most people who find themselves in line for a CISO position are coming up as technical specialists mm-hmm. and they're coming from a technical background. And so that's their primary tool. And there are some technical people who are great communicators when they want to be, but there's a sense of the word politics is a dirty word, right? And um, even among, I think, people who profess the right values in, on the CISO side or on that you know, senior manager of security side, let's say, 
you get the sense that people view that stuff as a distraction from quote unquote, the real work of security. And as long as people view that work as a distraction or as this thing you have to dispense with, uh, maybe not as a checkbox, but maybe it's just a unfortunate reality of the job. And we'd like to get back to doing technology. Um, I heard someone, you know, someone mentioned something like, yeah, you still have to learn how to put on the monkey suit and go talk to the executives and do the dog and pony show. And I'm like, Dude, as, as long as you use the word monkey suit and, and you sort of use that dismissive language, um, you're not going to realize that that's, that is the fucking job. Exactly. That's the job. That is the, 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 the real part of the job. It uh, is. And it's the only way you can make progress because you hear so many security people say, look, we feel like we're digging, trying to sort of pump out the well. Um, and we're down in the well and we're pumping water out, but it's the organization is dumping stuff on us even faster. And you kind of say, well you're going to inherit an, uh, an amount of debt and, you, and there's also going to be some function where more debt gets accumulated and how you stop that debt from being accumulated at such a high rate is through talking to people and through engaging differently and through saying, Hey, let's talk about ways that we can offer our security services to your project and, and how that would work and what we can do, how we demonstrate value. Let's get some projects under our belt. Um, let's, let's harness, compliance initiatives if necessary to create the energy in order to get certain changes through the organization. Let's take extra time in educating users about the why of something and work to build their trust and work closely with the help desk team who has to you know do all this stuff. That's the job. And and if and if that's treated as an afterthought or a distraction from the real work, then you're always going to be basically underwater. Yeah, and that's right. and that's why the the average tenure for a CISO, I think, is uh, number seventeen months. Uh, in in general, CISOs don't last long in that position. It's very high burnout, uh, yeah, frustration rate, and you know you see this cycle of chairs being spin. Yeah, and I think you know what I've seen among the very long tenured CISOs and the ones who are able to stay effective in their positions in that seat. Um, First of all, you learn to ask some very important questions up front before you take the job about what the priorities really are. And um, I think it's worth, as a CISO, talking to other CISOs about who have left positions, say, what would you have asked up front? And how would you assess that answer? Because it's one thing to say, hey, I want to make sure you guys take security seriously, and then I'm going to have the resources to do my job. And the company say, well, you know, um, of course we take it seriously, and this is the, you know, um, an important position for us. It's why we're talking to you and we absolutely are committed to it. But you have to ask, I think, some more direct questions about things like, okay, boss, um, what if you and I come to an impasse and I firmly believe that uh, something that you're pushing for is a material risk to the organization and I feel like I have a responsibility. You and I can't come to an agreement or a compromise on it. I feel like I have the responsibility to escalate this maybe to the board or to the exec team. How should we handle that? Because it may come up. Right. And I think and those are hard, hard right. questions to have during an interview process. It's and, and they're so necessary because that's where the rubber meets the road. It's all great when when no trade-offs need to be made and um, the work that you're doing isn't going to stop anyone else from accomplishing their goals, but those things will come into conflict. Yeah, right? another thing people don't pay attention to is what is the reporting structure? Am I reporting to the guy who is responsible for creating risk? Or am I reporting into the guy whose task is introducing risk, like the CIO, for instance? Or am I all the way up to the CEO? How does that juxtaposition, uh, how does that work? Uh, right. Even the reporting structure needs some clarity. But that's kind of getting off on a tangent. But, you know, by the way, just on that tangent, really quickly to cap it off, um, there's the reporting structure on paper, and then there's the actual power structures right. inside the company, and, and those are never the same. You also, one, the other part of your, uh, before we run out of time, I want to touch a couple of these points you made in this Twitter thread. You um, really firmly asked people to stop uh, whining and complaining about companies that can't get the basics right. And this triggered yeah. something in me because you know i go to a lot of security conferences listen to a lot of talks by experts security experts and ceos and cso's and guys who are in the trenches and so on and i hear this a lot you know uh, you, you this company was such a shit show because they couldn't get the basics right and mm -hmm. your argument is like dude back off a lot of the times your idea of the basics is not what the basics are. And secondly, as we all know, the basics are incredibly hard. They, they, they look right. easy on paper, but you 
you know, doing it at scale, it's incre- it's almost impossible. And that's why we're dealing with breaches every day where, you know, you open a security news website, there's a big breach yep. and someone got in through some rudimentary phishing attack and you complain that, oh my God, you guys can't even protect against phishing. Right. No, no As one if can. Well, right. I mean, so it's it's armchair generals, it's amateur hour, right? People saying, look, it's very simple. If you ask me, you just do this, do this and do this, like, and then you won't have any problems. And maybe that list is a hundred things long, but there's still this sense of it's inexcusable to get that stuff wrong. And the reality is it's really easy to get that stuff wrong. First of all, as I mentioned, the constraints to getting the basics in place are usually not technical and they're usually not even visible. How do you describe the basics? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, I do actually put a lot of value in things like NIST and you know ISO 27K as a, as a framework, right? So I think I would look to that and say, um, for a particular organization, you want to figure out which of those domains apply to you. But I think broadly, it's, um, you know, I'm going to come at it from a different angle, which is someone who's now built security programs across different companies, a, a, um, a shape starts to show up. By the way, and I think it's Gary Hayslip from Webroot who has like this Maslow's hierarchy of needs pyramid about the security basics. And I mostly agree with it. Um, and so maybe I'll, I'll send you the link for that. You can include it afterwards. Absolutely. But you know what's interesting is the, the foundation these days, if you think about how breach is happening, the foundation is not asset management. It's identity management. And so identity is the new perimeter. And I know it's easy to say that, but if you don't have solid identity and access management at scale, you're missing a major foundation. And, and frankly, it's, it's a hard problem to bite off and to do at scale. It's highly user visible. Um, but if you don't have a good story there, then uh, I is think it- that a lot, a lot of the other stuff you're, you might be doing around asset management and scanning and patching, I think is, is sort of you're pissing into the wind. Speaking of identity, is it easy for a company, a big company, a mature company to uh, migrate towards a zero trust beyond corp environment? It really depends on the company and their existing investment and infrastructure and where they are in that. Um, it's going to be easier for some companies than others. I know it's they, easier for startups. If you're starting from scratch, you drop in G Suite, you put in mm-hmm. a, a, a two-factor authentication and uh, maybe an Okta solution in your enterprise and you kind of... Right get a grip build it's easier to build from scratch than to migrate sure. backwards i heard um andy ellis from akamai talking about yep. moving backwards in a big in a large big organization post aurora breach and they're almost yeah. there so we know it, it's doable i'm just curious because I've, I've never really spoken to anyone or had any experience with moving from a traditional perimeter to mm-hmm. this new world and i'm uh, well curious to see how big companies think about it Zero trust is a combination of, I think, how you manage assets and networks and how you manage identity. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, if I, if I were advising companies and the best way to approach this is get the identity part locked down first, because you can do a solid approach to identity and access management that will form the foundation for an eventual zero trust model. Um, and so get that done first, because it's going to add value right away, even before you move to that zero trust model. And a lot of companies may you know, be moving certain parts of the network over to zero trust. And a lot of companies, frankly, have to say, look, for new applications, um, they're going to be built and hosted in such a way that we bake all this stuff in. We can put them on the, you know, in our public cloud and rely on the baked in protections at each layer. Um, and you know, there's essentially no on-prem component to these solutions. But you've got legacy stuff that might exist really for decades. And, and you've got data centers, you've got branch offices, you've got all this stuff, you've got field employees. And so a lot of it just so much depends on where they are in the refresh cycle, what their existing, you know, infrastructure is, but, you know, start with identity, because that's a two to three year journey in and of itself, just getting that figured out, not just single, people think of identity access management, a single sign on, but it's really a lot more to it, you know. Uh, One of these basics is a problem you're trying to solve now uh, with Habituate. And that is the user education piece. Uh, yep. So we're, we're in a paradigm now where people, you have to click to get work done, mm-hmm. but that clicking introduces risk. People open attachments, they're not supposed to open. People click on links, they're not supposed to click on. Um, uh, John Podesta and the DNC found out mm-hmm. how a rudimentary phishing attack can lead to a world of pain. 
Yeah. Uh, why haven't we gotten this right yet? Because I've been writing these stories <laughs> for 10, 15 years um, uh, about user education being uh, largely the argument was that uh, security organizations spending on user education is a waste of money. People need to click and people will click. How do you fit into that and how do you see Habituate playing a role in getting this piece at the basics right? Yeah. So I, the idea for starting it really came from my experiences, you know, um, as a CISO and putting that investment in the engagement work, engagement with users, engagement with product teams, engagement with IT, engagement with the executives, engagement with partners. Um, say, hey, this is the biggest bang for the buck. And even if I'm approaching a technical problem, like I need to roll out two-factor authentication, it's going to be way easier to roll that out um, if I put a lot of work into the engagement up front. Even things like, hey, we're not spying on you. This little app on your phone is just a token. Um, and that's a decent amount of work, especially at scale. And I think the way that a lot of people approach the security awareness function is uh, they, they take a technical oriented mindset to it and they say, well, okay, so let's treat it as patch management, except I'm rolling out knowledge to users, right? And I can roll out modules to users with this automated email. And maybe I have some cool AI that rolls out the right patch to the right user at the right time. And we're, we're so thinking about the means of delivery and checking all the boxes on content um, that we're not focused on the content itself. What are we saying? What should we be saying? Should we be saying don't click on that? Should we be teaching users? Here's how to spot a phishing email. Just you know, right click, open the raw headers in Notepad, and let's see if you can spot the forged from header. I don't want my users doing that stuff, and I've always been frustrated with the content. And you know, I remember being the CISO at, at Rapid Seven. I was in-house CISO for a while, just because the VP of Engineering gets anything that looks vaguely technical thrown, you know, on his or her plate. So. Um, and by the way, being a CISO inside of a security company is a thankless job because everyone thinks they're an expert and no one's ever happy with the decisions you make. But um, I remember having to do awareness and sort of buying one of the off-the-shelf sort of awareness solutions saying, hey, we need this. Our partners are demanding it. It's part of our you know, certification process. And everyone hated the content. I hated the content. And, and I chose the least bad option on the market, but I knew it was bad. Yeah, I have never done a security awareness training as an employee anywhere that didn't want didn't leave me wanting to screw, uh, yeah. screwdriver through my ears looking at... Uh... Yeah. And and the, the interesting thing is, if you, if you take it as a given that the engagement is really important, you also have to recognize as a CISO, your security awareness is probably the most FaceTime and or screen time that you're going to get and the dedicated attention that you're going to get from the average employee. And if you look at it from that lens, you go, am I saying what I want to be saying, how I want to be saying it? Are we talking about the right stuff or are we just sort of taking this, this content and rolling it out? The other thing that I think I noticed coming, you know, being a CISO in 2016 versus 2006 when I last did it at Rapid7 was the awareness content hasn't changed at all. It's literally the same modules and it's 10 years later and it still sucks. And um, I was, again, I, I mentioned the best way to start a company is just suffer from a problem and get frustrated. And so this was frustrating me. I'm like, it's the same companies. And by the way, security awareness has somehow become phishing awareness and they're seen, seen as synonymous. And we're looking at you know training as this either once a year thing or this sort of t thing that comes on the tail end of a phishing simulation attack that we do against our users. And we have this vanity metric of click rate. And I'm thinking, wow, there's a lot of other stuff I wanna be talking to my users about other than phishing. Phishing's huge, it's really important. Um, but if you look at some root cause stuff of how people conduct themselves in the network and the things that they're used to, like phishing isn't the only thing we should be talking about. And we certainly shouldn't be trying to engage with our users and train them and teach them um, right after we tricked them. I look at the phishing simulation stuff and I'm saying, and when I looked at this market and Jason and I were talking about starting Habituate, I said, you know, the phishing simulation stuff really belongs like baked into the email infrastructure. And I, and I think that that's where we're going to see that going. And it's also, frankly, it, it's the very definition of a red team function. I don't think it's something that the awareness team should be doing because if the awareness team does it, they're going to measure one thing, the click rate, right? But if the red team does it, they're going to measure the stuff that really matters, which is how, how quickly does the first employee report it? And how quickly can the blue team, you know, respond to contain, identify, you know, um, this particular phishing campaign. 
um, and prevent it from spreading. And so I, I feel like the way that the market was doing it was wrong and uh, it was going to change. And it's interesting, after we started Habituate, you just saw um, you saw it all unfold. You see, you know, um, Barracuda acquires a phishing uh, and awareness uh, solution and Proofpoint right, buys one and you see FishMe, the, the, you know, arguably the leader in, the, in that phishing simulation and awareness market, rebrand as CoFence and say, hey, we're going to go after the email security stuff like Proofpoint and Barracuda. But you also see, hey, Microsoft le releases phishing simulation as part of Office 365 advanced threat protection. And now you're seeing companies like Rapid7, you know, my old company, including phishing simulation as part of its, you know, managed, um, it's, it's SaaS offering. And so I, I, you know, that's how we sized up the market. And we said, we want to really focus on the content, content, the content, the content, that's it. And make it great. Obviously we want to find easy ways to deliver that content, but we want to be saying things that other people aren't saying and say them in a, saying them in a way that users really connect with. Because if I look at when I first did this stuff in 2006 and how the modules looked and this, you know, SCORM e-learning stuff, um, it has a very dated feel to it. But back in 2006, I mean, really there was no Instagram, there was no Vine, there was none of this stuff. People weren't streaming video off of Netflix, you know, and 10 years later, the two biggest names in Hollywood are a tech company from Seattle and a tech company from the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. And so it's everything in people's digital experience and how they consume and relate to content has changed, but awareness continues to change rapidly from year to year. Sure. Right. And so let's, let's now take an employee who's in their mid twenties and, and put her through the traditional awareness uh, training process, which is, you know, go log in over here and maybe you have to get on the VPN and now you're inside the LMS and you've got these modules you have to click through. And this is like boring sort of articulate based cheesy animation and voiceovers about the cybercrime market. Um, it's not engaging. And, and also the, the entire UX, the entire experience is so foreign to the rest of that person's digital experience, the other 23 hours of the day that it's jarring and, and it, they're not going to connect with it. And, yeah. and they're probably going to hate it. One of the things around security awareness that I, I think gets overlooked is how often we're, we're turning to users to make the right decisions when as an organization we should turn to a tool to make that decision for them or we should buy some right. sort of solution to make that decision for them like we should not be spending time in this day and age teaching people about password strength and how to create password strength just give them a password manager and two-factor authentication have the tools take care of all of that for them right and take all of that away from our security awareness training and that's still somewhat missing in organizations today yeah, I think that we're always going to see a gap between what the technical uh, solutions can be in practice, first of all, in theory and in practice, um, and what you know, what's what are we allowed to roll out? Because you could create a very very secure environment that's very difficult for people to get their work done. Yeah, and so that's the other so, thing. It's like you can put all kinds of controls and things in place, and then suddenly someone can't get something important done, and it gets turned off. Right, or they go around it. So I think you know. There's always this balance and this tension between we want to give you the ability to do anything you want to do within reason, but we also need to sort of protect the data and protect the larger group. And so we're also there's this tension of we want to restrict what you can do. And so the gap between those two things is always where the education has to come in, which is this is the current environment that you have to operate in and be productive in and try to be safe in. So let's let's teach you about how to operate in the environment. And so I, I agree with you that a lot of the times there's some very high leverage solution stuff that you can do from the technical side if you can get it pushed through that um, make the problem go away and you no longer have to train people on something that, hey, the higher leverage thing is to just have the technology handle it and bake it in. So Listen, man, and, if, if the DNC had two-factor authentication implemented, that user mistake would not have mattered. Or maybe it, it would have, but it would have raised the bar for the attacker. It, it would have raised the bar for the attacker, and um, it's it's fairly easy to fish two-factor authentication. I think U2F is a different different beast mm -hmm. and um, provides a higher level of security. But also, um, and this is where I come back to my point about governance and the boring stuff. If you had um, better email retention policies, the outcome would have been way different, right? What why why have every single email you've ever sent just sitting there waiting to to be hoovered into some hackers, you know, tarball. And, and this is where I think 
you see the impact of good governance, which is we can walk around here and try to secure all the projects that are happening, and we can try to secure all the data that we have and all the data that we continue to collect and keep forever. Um, or we can start having conversations around um, we have we have too much stuff relative to the value of keeping this stuff in a breachable form. Um, it's too expensive to secure it. And I would I always had you know better conversations as a CISO by saying. Um, let's attach a per record cost to each record and say, by the way, you know, and you have very good data out there from Verizon, uh, from the IDP reports, like about the average cost of a breach defined in a per record way, right? So you take that unit cost and you say, look, so here's how we define a record here inside of company X. And here's how many we have, and we have them forever. Here's how many we add every month. And we don't do any kind of anonymization of this data. We don't do any trimming based off of the date. It just accumulates. And so if we were to have a breach, it would be about this much. So let's talk about what, you know, a reasonable amount to spend is for that amount of data. You want to do right. this? You want to gather this data? Well, here's the security tax on that. So I'm never saying no. I'm saying here's how much the tax is. And so I'm putting the incentive back where it belongs. If people think that security is an externality, just gets baked in for free and they can do whatever they want, have as much data as they want for as long as they want, um, then the incentives are in the wrong place. You have to put the incentives back on people to manage their data budget, manage their appetite for storing, keeping the stuff. And then you can start having really great conversations around, we shouldn't keep it forever. And, and we should also talk about maybe there being some intermediate state of we still well, we still want this data to be able to close our books or to derive market insights from and put it in a data lake and you know do this analysis on and maybe we derive some key competitive intel here about what works and you say, okay, great, but it's, does it need to be fully tied to PII in order to do that? Or can we can we have an intermediate form where it's anonymized and then eventually it goes away? Right. And, and that's or, and yeah, that's just all the policy stuff that goes into setting up risk management in your organization. It's, it's boring stuff in a way, but it's your absolute highest leverage. And so I say, hey, well, look, if you look at the DNC breach, you could see it as a failure of email security, or you could see it as a failure of um, data governance, you know, or both. Or both, yeah. Or security awareness. Or right. something else missing somewhere. Hey, so we're running out of time. I want to put you on the spot to ask you two last questions. Uh, sure. What... what when you look around today and you see solutions and, and technologies being built, some interesting, some not, uh, but some are really, really interesting. This is where I want to put on your CISO hat and tell me, what are some of the most overhyped uh, technology solutions out there today? You don't need to call a company name. You can talk about the technology in general. And what do you think are underhyped ones that have like significant promise, things you really like and, and, and are yeah. fascinated by? Gosh, overhyped. Um, I would have to say anything today that's really heavily asset focused or heavily network focused. Um, I just look at and say the the new investments that companies are making in IT are dominantly being made in these rapidly evolving public cloud platforms. And we no longer have a network. We no longer have a wire. Um, and, and I look at stuff like micro segmentation, like these next gen firewalls. And I say, those exist to solve a legacy problem that is rapidly going away. And we're a few refreshes away from these, uh, these firewall vendors. Coming uh, obsolete, yeah. Yeah. And, and um, so that's something I think is, I won't say it's overhyped. I just see it as something that's going to fade over time. And I also think anything based off of the idea of an asset as a artisanally crafted, long lived, unique entity that evolves over time, a network asset, I mean, uh, I think that goes away too. I mean, it's, it already somewhat does with, with the, you know, the elastic nature of the cloud. But if you factor in serverless computing and Lambda, um, you kind of go, well, I don't know. I just have pieces of code running and I don't really know where they're running. It's totally abstracted away from me. Now what? And so that's a problem that I don't think people have sort of wrapped their heads around and, and, you know, these sort of asset-based solutions, whether they are cloud-native or not, um, it's kind of interesting to see what will become of all of that and how we approach security in a, you know, dominantly mm -hmm. Lambda or serverless world. Makes and I don't sense. know the answer to that. And what do you like? What, do you, what, are, what are some innovation you're seeing coming down the pike that, you know, raises your eyebrow and says, hey, that looks interesting? Yeah, I have... 
I, I really like automation and orchestration. I think the market's ready for some of this stuff. Um, so kind of like what Demisto is doing, I think Rapid7's pickup of command was great. Um, there's been a couple other moves in that space, which I think are really cool. So I would definitely keep an eye on automation orchestration. Um, you know, I, I have uh, I have unique tastes, and so there's sometimes there's solutions that are very very You're simple. The right that person I to ask this love. question to. Yeah, I think um, I look at um, what Haroon is doing with Canary, and I think you know uh, that's great. That's it's so simple, and it's so easy to roll out, and it's so powerful that it, it can easily be overlooked. I like that, um, and there's other things I like that are like solutions that look like quickly throwing a blanket over the environment and buying yourself a lot of visibility visibility and risk reduction. Um, and so like, I think Cisco's pickup of open DNS mm -hmm. was huge. And, and open DNS is one of those things you can, you know, uh, and by the way, I'm not affiliated with them in any way. I don't even own stock, but I think an open DNS is something that you can turn on in a week and your users won't even notice. And, um, and you're quickly th tossing a blanket over the whole environment and being like, I just made a huge difference in security and no one notices. Those are the solutions that I really like. That's why I like Haroon's stuff. That's why I like OpenDNS. Um, OpenDNS is really interesting. I remember when they were asking you to, you know, change your DNS settings in your browser so that they could get the ad revenue. And David was a small one-man operation to look yep. at what that company has become. It's just fascinating. Yeah, and it's um it's very effective, right? And there's a lot of there's a lot of really effective stuff out there. But I look at the sort of you know the effort like Okta is I I think Okta is amazing. Um, I think the problem of provisioning and deprovisioning hasn't really been solved well by Okta or anybody else. Maybe SailPoint plays in that space. I look at that stuff. I say that's all great. I love what Duo was doing. Um, and so there's a lot of companies out there that I think are really great. But the ones that I rave about are the ones that you can just Love just bring in quickly yeah. put it up. Yep, exactly. All right, Chad, thank you very much. Where can people find you? Where can they find Habituate? Are you guys hiring? What's the... Yeah, so the website is uh, www.habituate. That's H-A-B-I-T-U and the number the eight. Number eight, right. Dot I-O um, or dot com, either or. Um, so we are going to be hiring soon. Stay tuned. We're scaling up. Um, the market response has been fantastic. Um, and we're trying to really, I think, grow in a measured way. So we're, we're privately funded. There's no outside VC and um, we're, we're working with our growing list of customers to sort of expand our stuff and just you know, reach more people. So check it out. It's really easy to view our content. We're pretty open about sharing it because we're really proud of it. So if you want to kind of check out what your security awareness stuff could be like, um, go to www.habituate.io and sign up and we'll let you look at it. Um, and you can find yeah. Chad on Twitter, uh, Chad Loader on Twitter. Um, a lot yep. of fun to be had out there. Are you oh, heading yeah. out to Black Hat this year? I will be. Yeah, I'm going to do. Um, I got a couple of, uh, I guess, appearances you could say that I'll be making at Black Hat. I don't know how much time I'll spend on the floor, and then I'll also be doing some some stuff, um, staying in for DefCon a little bit. So, I'll be in Vegas. Hit me up on Twitter if you want to find me or LinkedIn, and uh, you know, happy to chat with anybody. Thank you very much, Chad. Appreciate the time. Thank you. It was great.